Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. Hey guys, welcome to another episode in our Mastermind series. Today we're talking about one of my favorite things. Such a loser. I <laughs> Nobody should be this nerdy about it, but I don't care because I love the topic of goal setting. I will die on this hill. I will talk about this until I go on home to Jesus, how important it is for every single human to have a goal. I believe little kids should have goals. I believe if you're a college student, if you're a daddy, a mama, a doctor, a CEO, you're starting your own business, it doesn't matter what the goal is. I think every single person should be working towards something. Not because the goal is exciting, not because you need to keep achieving or you have to hustle for your worth, but because of who we become on the way to the goal. If you set a goal for yourself, either personally, professionally, financially, whatever your ideal is, once you set a mark, once you create a finish line, once you give yourself a deadline and you're working toward something, all sorts of obstacles and challenges arise that make you into the person you want to be. See, this is where people get goal setting so twisted. We set a goal and maybe it's something big and lofty. Maybe it's something that feels a little bit out of reach, but we're pretty confident we can achieve it. And in my experience, as soon as you set a goal, something happens that knocks you sideways. You know, the washing machine breaks, your sister's marriage falls apart, your family has issues, you lose your job. Maybe it's a big thing, maybe it's a little thing, but at least in my life, it seems like every time I call a big shot, I immediately encounter all sorts of things that feel like they're trying to stop me and my forward momentum. And when I was younger, I used to think that those those obstacles were a sign that this goal that I had 
set out for myself that this goal wasn't for me. I was like, oh, this is life. This is God. This is something greater than me trying to tell me that this thing that I'm hoping for isn't supposed to be mine. Because if it was supposed to be mine, it would be easier. What I've actually discovered in 40 years is that when we call a shot, the obstacles that show up in our path are actually the exact thing that is required for us to be strong enough to get to the goal. Like you called your shot, you said you want to get to the top of the mountain, so you're going to find some speed bumps in front of you that force you to get out of your comfort zone, that force you to have to get creative, that test your tenacity, your resilience, your willingness to stand back up and go again. And every time you overcome one of those speed bumps, you grow a new muscle, you grow a new neuro passage in your brain, you grow skills and tools and have information you didn't have before. So that as you get closer and closer to the goal, you are better able to achieve it. That's what we're going to talk about today. And I have picked a really eclectic group of people. Like when I first started doing these masterminds, I would choose teachers from past episodes who were most known in that category. And then I realized that's interesting. But what if you heard about goal setting? What if you heard about mindset? What if you heard about finances from people you wouldn't typically expect to be discussing that topic? So today, for goal setting, you're going to hear from comedian Gabriel Iglesias, who talked to us about going from tiny clubs doing stand-up for five minutes to selling out Dodger Stadium with a Netflix special. You're going to hear from Dave Asprey, the founder of Bulletproof. You're going to hear from hip-hop artist Logic, race car driver Danica Patrick, and every major music award-winning songwriter, Tom Douglas. It is a wide group of people bringing different worldviews and perspectives, but my hunch is that one of these teachers is gonna say something today that helps you to see goal setting in a way that you haven't before. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope it encourages you to set a new goal. Hi. I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. From the time that I had the idea to the time that I can say I was calling myself a comedian was 10 years. But it wasn't like I was trying for 10 years. It's just that I, I there was no way of doing it. Yeah. You know, I'm a kid in school and, you know, uh, all I knew back then. See, today you can go online and you can research and find if there's something out there, you can find it. Right. Whereas back then it's like, 
you know, we drove to a local comedy club. I tried to go in, and they're like, "No, kid, you got to be 21 and over to be in here." And my brother, my brother was like, you know, like, "Hey, you remember? You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna see this guy's face one day," which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, that's you know. So I was just waiting to. I, I was aging basically. I needed to, you know, be old enough. <laughs> Age to into do it. the system. Age into yeah. the system. Wow. Uh, when I was 17, I got on the school uh, speech team. And that was kind of in the vein where it allowed me to get in front of people. It allowed me to feel comfortable just talking and, and you know, getting over that stage fright. Yeah. April 10th, 1997 uh, is, is the date. <laughs> to be specific. To be specific. Um, yeah. Well, that's that's when everything, you know, first kicked off. I got a chance to uh, put my name basically in a hat at a, at a place. And then, you know, I was able to go up. And it went very well. I, I was surprised. It was only like three minutes, but it was just me doing what I did as a kid in, in high school. You know, I was getting up in front of people and just doing impressions and characters. There was no real joke in there. It was just the fact that I could nail the voices. Yeah. But everybody was like, oh, that's cool. And so little by little, I just started making those voices do funny things. Right. And so in the beginning, I was very dirty. So I was all my cartoon characters. Everybody was having sex. It was very inappropriate. <laughs> But it was funny. Right. And so I, I started building off of that. Got it. So what's crazy is that uh, within three months, I was already working on the road. Um, crazy. The guy uh, that was booking the bar, you know, was an established comedian and stuff like that. He was booking uh, the opening acts on the road uh, at a couple of different comedy clubs. And he's like, hey, kid, you, uh, you know, you got 15 minutes of time on you. You want to go on the road? And I'm like, Yeah. And so my first show, I was doing um, Tucson, Arizona. I was opening up for a couple of other comedians. And that was awesome because I was able to do what I did in front of two established comics. And then those two established comics had their own comedy nights. And so it was like back then, it's like you go out, you do a show, somebody sees you, you exchange numbers, right. you have conversations, you, you, you're you social that way. And then from there, you're like, hey, you know, I got a friend who does a thing over here. I, well, I got a friend who does a thing over there. And so you would save information and you'd make phone calls and that's how you would, you know, uh, you'd, you'd, you'd get other gigs. Uh, I want to say that that was from the from the get. Once I quit my day job, um, which happened in the, uh, I'd say about year three, year, like mid to the beginning of three is when I when I said, you know what, I'm just, I'm going for it. Yeah. Um, it was a little premature because... Uh, <laughs> Again, I, I you know I had a day job and then I went full blown on let me just try to make this comedy thing work, and I ran out of money so fast and I got evicted. They were looking for my car. I wound up sleeping at my brother's house and and then moving in with my sister. It was, and everyone kept saying, "Go back and get your job. You're not ready to be a comic yet." And I'm like, "No, I got you. Got to yeah. go in all the way, yep. or 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 don't do it." Yeah. And so that that was that learning right there. That was that like, how bad do you want it? Right. I think I needed that test to see. Am I really willing to sacrifice and go for it? And what did that sacrifice look Ooh, like? It was ugly. <laughs> it was ugly. It was so ugly. Oh, my God. I, I ate so much Top Ramen. <laughs> That's a 99 cent store special, man. Living off living yeah. off whatever they had to offer. I was I was very lucky that, uh, you know, my, my sister had taken me in and, and allowed me to chase this dream. Every day she'd just look at me and go, get it. She'd go, get a real job. Yeah. Come on. But she'd see me on the phone. You know, I'd be making phone calls and... Again, you know, you had to be very social. You had to uh, maintain relationships. You couldn't do anything on, on, on a cell. There was no app that back then. There was no, you know, you couldn't go Google uh, stuff. You had to do a set somewhere, have someone record it, 
have it put on a VHS tape, then find a location where they could duplicate those VHS tapes and then research and find comedy clubs, um, mail those tapes to those clubs and then call those clubs to make sure they receive the tape, follow up and then see if the person, manager, booker saw it, was interested and then, you know, I mean, there were so many steps back yeah. then. Yeah, you had to be your own. You had to be your own, everything, and so yeah. it was like it was a lot of time on the phone. And um, like I said, my sister was very patient with me because I ran up a lot of long distance. I didn't have a, a manager, an agent back then that would make all those phone calls and do all that work. So all that all I had to do was show up and just be funny. Yeah. Yeah. So now the fact that I had you to get learn to just show up and be funny. Up, now I get to show up and be funny, which right. is which is great. But uh, I I I love the fact that I had to learn everything from the get. It's yeah. like you know if you're working at a restaurant and you start off as a the guy that's just taking out the trash, then you're clearing tables, and you know you're moving up until eventually you're you're running the the business. You Absolutely. know you know you know every single position. Yeah. I firmly believe you have to take chances and and be willing to fail in order to get to where you want to get. So there was a few years of of growing pains. And then, of course, you know, money would come in, money would go out. And then learning, uh, hey, all right, I got a little in over my head this year. I might want to start acting right or do this, that. So there was always constantly um, uh, work, but there was also learning because there was, you know, I'd, I'd take chances. I'd I put myself out there. Take chances in terms of like I'm gonna fund my own tour. I take chances as in like yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna buy these CDs because at the time uh, CDs were the thing and so like uh, I'm gonna invest in in a recording of myself and I'm gonna invest in purchasing uh, bulk you know units and storing them in a closet and then take them on the road and sell them and and instead of parting with that money I gotta save that money reinvest it create a new recording or purchase more. Or find something else to supplement whatever it was, you know, whatever it was that I was doing. Absolutely. And so when I say, when I say, oh, you got to bet on yourself, that's what I mean. It's like yeah. be willing to invest in yourself and sacrifice the fun because you're going to want to have fun because you're going to see how easy it is yeah. once the ball starts moving. Right. Because you want to be able to build an audience that will come out to see you. That was the goal. You want to build this audience to come out to see you. So the fact that I came along at a time when the internet was just starting to take off and then eventually getting involved with um, putting my content on on YouTube for the world, you know, and a lot of times comics would get upset. I'd rather have people sharing my content because all it's going to do is promote me and get my name out there. I'll make money when I go on tour. So I encouraged people to please share my content if you love it. You know, because a lot of times people were just pulling reporting accounts and stuff like that. I'm like, no, nah, share the shit yeah, out of it, yeah. please. Thank you. Yeah. You know, and and I feel like that really helped me. A yeah. Lot to to get to get to that next place. It's and and more... uh, and other people would have been like, no, nah, man, you're losing money. Yeah, you're doing this yeah. and that. But comics are all together in groups, and everyone's talking. I just feel like, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Someone needs to be the one that says, all right, the leader of it. And then be like, okay, unless they're doing better than everyone else, yeah. then everyone just needs to, you know, yeah. uh, just stop. The <laughs> branding, all that started many, many years ago when, uh, you know, took on the, the nickname, the fluffy nickname. Because originally it was just a joke in the set. And so the idea was, my last name is Iglesias. It's already a famous name, okay? A couple people have rocked that name and they've been very successful with it. I says, all I got to do is, is make the first name famous. And I figured... Gabriel is not a common name, especially amongst comedians. There's only been one other famous Gabriel, and that was Gabe Kaplan, that really stood out. Had a sitcom, a show back in the day, you know, uh, Welcome Back, Cotter. And so there wasn't 
another Gabriel out there that was doing comedy that that had that was popular. And so I says, I just got to work on Gabriel. And in my set, I had a joke about, you know, be, you know, I'm a big guy and I'm, you know, I complained to my mom that I, I was fat. And she's like, you're not fat, you're fluffy, mijo. And so it was that whole, that bit about calling myself fluffy. In which case, I only said it like one time in the bit. But at the end of the show, whenever I'd see people, because and that was another thing too. After my show, I would stay and and thank every single person that came out. I'd stand by the door. And so when they're walking out, thanks for coming by. I appreciate, you know, thank you. I hope you had a good time. And, you know, sometimes people would have cameras with them. This was before cell phones could do it. Yeah. So people would have a physical camera, and so I'd take a picture or or just sign something. They would come up to me and they'd say, "Good, good job, Fluffy," and I'm like, "I'm like, really?" Like, I, it was oh, one joke, dang. and I was so annoyed because I'm like, "My, why can't they say Gabriel? Why can't they say, yeah. you know, the Iglesia?" It was always Fluffy, and I, I just, I got so tired and I was so annoyed, but I, I didn't want to drop the joke because it was a good joke, and so um, I just eventually learned to embrace it. And I made it a thing where every single thing I, I did, I incorporated the word fluffy and I branded it so hard so early on where if you go online and I tell people all the time, it's the, the fluffy challenge. Google the word fluffy and I am the number. I own the word. I, I'm the first thing that will pop up. I, I beat, you know, beat out uh, cats, quilts, comforters, cotton candy, anything fluffy. I am first globally. Oh, my God. So it's it. it I branded it that hard back then. And uh, I stayed consistent. I think a lot of times, too, um, I learned a lot from pro wrestling. Yeah, they big, were saying this. I'm a big this. fan okay. of pro wrestling. And so they're always coming out with new uh, characters and, and, and you know, uh, wrestlers and just they'll have gimmicks about a, a certain personality that they have. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll present this personality. And in the beginning, you're like, Ugh, really? You know, you're what, if you're, if you're like watched religiously the way I did, you're like, oh, this new character. All right. I don't know. But then they hit you with the same character the following week and then the following week and the following week. And, and you start, they, you start getting conditioned to, uh, want and expect the exact same thing. So they'll have the same catchphrase, the same look, the same entrance. And so they train you and, and they condition you to get used to that and want that. Yeah. And so when they deviate from it, you feel like, whoa. Yeah. And so it was one of those things where I'm like, okay, I, I need to stay consistent. Because uh, I, I have a lot of comedy friends that are constantly changing their look, changing their cadence, changing their what they're doing in their act. And I'm like, Give yourself a chance to succeed doing what you're doing before you abandon ship. That's so you know, good. Give, give it a chance. Give yeah. it a chance. And, and, and you know, because I'm all for change and doing what's best to make it grow. But you need to get, you know, because I had one friend, he used to always cut his hair. You know, he had his hair really long and then he cut his hair short. He's like, oh, I'm just going for a better look. People are only remember the dude with the long hair. Right. Why, why did you do this? Right. Once you, once you get to a place where people know you, then you can do whatever you want. You want to have a beard like Jonah Hill, not have a beard like Jonah Hill. You want to be big like Jonah Hill. You want to be thin like Jonah Hill. You, It's Jonah Hill. Right. So there's no question about that. But if he did that before when no one knew him, then it's like, yeah, it's like eight different people that just, you know. So, so, so try, to, try to stay consistent with it. And so, like I said, I, I branded the fluffy thing back then. I stayed consistent with the shorts and the look. So big guy, Hawaiian shirt, shorts fluffy 
Was anybody rocking shorts on? It, it, these are little things that stand out. So, you know, how do you remember that one guy? It's the guy in the shorts. Yeah. How many comics are wearing shorts? Everybody back in the day was wearing the, the uh, what do they call this? Like the sport coat? The, the, the oh, like a blazer. The, yeah. 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 And jeans, you know, a certain look. And it's like, okay. What, you're right. How, what are you doing to make yourself different to stand out? Yeah, you're so right. So, of course, what's happening on stage uh, and then what's happening off stage. Everyone was just jumping on the, in their car and taking off, you know, for, whereas my show was done, but it wasn't done. Now phase two. Now we go outside and we do the meet and greets. My meet and greets would take twice as long as the show. Wow. Yeah, I understand that. And then the people were like, oh, he's going to hang out. Right. Go, yeah, I'll yeah. hang out. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to stay, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Guys, no two listeners of the show are exactly alike, which means that no two vacations you take are going to be exactly alike either. And if you're looking for a place that will serve all of you, Texas has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities that allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. I love Texas so much, I moved my family there for five years. Because here's the deal. Texas has it all. Are you a beach person? We got you. If you love a rugged vacation, not my jam, but there's plenty of campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. My favorite part about Texas? The food. It is the thing I miss the absolute most. Whether you love barbecue or Tex-Mex or just want to be in cities that take their food very seriously. You can enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Visit TravelTexas.com slash get your own 
to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash get your own. I used to weigh 300 pounds. I weigh about oh, maybe 200, 210 pounds, something like that now. And along the way, I said, I'm going to lose this weight. It's the most important thing ever. I don't want to have another knee surgery because I'm too heavy to move around effectively. So I worked out six days a week, an hour and a half a day, half weights, half cardio. And I did this for 18 months straight on a low-fat, low-calorie diet. Now, at the end Whoa. of this, I had a 46-inch waist, the same as I did before. I'm a 33-inch now. Okay, what did I gain during that time? I could max out all but two of the machines at the gym. My sleep wasn't good. My testosterone, even though, let's see, I measured it up about a year or two later, it was lower than my mom's testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> I know because we actually had her data from the same doctor. Wow. Like, this is a problem. And I, well, I was getting sick all the time before I started working out. That didn't get any better. I would just get, you know, sinus infections all the time. And I learned that overtraining is a thing. And I fast forward to the work I've done with Bulletproof and I've coached women and men, oftentimes very senior executives, people who are doing big things in the world. And it's almost like if, if you're going to go start a company and you're going to make it big, you're also going to run the Kona Ironman triathlon and you're going to work out for an hour a day, <laughs> right? And yeah. you're going to fly to Japan. We don't have to worry about that right now. But, you know, you're going to mm -hmm. you know, do something that's bad for your sleep and your circadian rhythm. And I, I can just stop someone there. And if it's a woman, it usually hits a woman first. And after, or even if they're saying, I'm going to go keto, right? I'm like, no, don't. I, I did that too. And I burned myself out that way. You can dip into ketosis and it's very good for you. And, and that's what my first book was about, how to do that in an effective way. And actually, it was my second book. My first book was on pregnancy and fertility. But <laughs> the, uh, the thing that's happening now, especially with long distance running, which is really rough, is that it can affect your cortisol levels and that can affect the rest mm -hmm. of your hormones. So when someone says, all right, I'm going to use exercise as a coping mechanism, you get an opiate rush from that, but then you got to recover more. And sometimes recovering more means exercising every other day. Mm. And the research on minimal effective dose of exercise says that if you want your mitochondria, these power plants in your cells to be effective and to grow, you need 20 minutes of moving every day. This is going for a walk, right? And then once or twice a week, you need to do something that makes you want to cry or throw up and do it for 15 minutes. Okay. Now, that's awesome. That's not going to be direction. enough for you because you want more than that. But if that's the low end, the high end where it starts not being good for you, it sounds like you might be hitting it. So the first thing you want to do is know when to exercise. So for me, after years of just intuiting this, I became very quantitative. And for almost 15 years, I've monitored my sleep quality. Now I use a ring. It's called the Aura Ring. Mm -hmm. And just full disclosure, I'm not trying to sell it. I am an investor in the company because I was CTO of a competitor to them that we sold for $100 million, So I know the space really well. The reason I like this, Rachel, is I wake up in the morning and it gives me a readiness score that's based on how my heart beats. Not how fast it beats, but little, little variations in it. That is a strong signal to say, today is a day to go hard or today is a day to go to yoga. Right? Mm -hmm. You can still exercise, right? But if you know I'm strong today, then you push. And if you know today's a recovery day, then you do the restful types of recovery. 
And this is to the point, I started a company called Upgrade Labs, which is meant to almost replace gyms, although you can still go work out however you want, but it's to recover faster than you're supposed to. And we've got things like cryotherapy and red light therapy and, and stuff like that. Because for me to run... Not just, I mean, you, you're you one of the few people who understands what it's like. Like I have a, you know, 200 million downloads on, on my podcast and it's, you know, top 100. And I write books um, about the same schedules you do and you know how, how draining it can be to just get all that out of you in under words. Right. Uh, and I'm also CEO of multiple companies and, and I was CEO of Bulletproof for a long time before I hired a CEO. And that's, you know, a giant company, at least by my standards now, lots of zeros in its revenues. So I was over training my brain and then I'd say, I'm going to go exercise. And I just realized, look, some days I don't have it. And it's okay. And it's such an act of kindness to say today, even though part of me wants to exercise and go hard because it's going to let that stress out, I know that if I do that, it's actually going to take away from my, my mental state and from my happiness state. I was obese as a kid. I was diagnosed with arthritis when I was 14 years old in my knees. Uh, by the mm. time I was in my, my mid-20s, I'd hit 300 pounds. I had, was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, all kinds of things. And I tried every diet out there. And I said, this is great. I can lose 50 pounds on keto. What today people call keto, you know, it's really dirty keto, where you just eat anything that's not a carb and you'll be fine. And it was called the Atkins diet way back in the day. The problem oh, was yeah. the other 50 pounds took me 10 years to lose and everyone who goes on keto and doesn't monitor the type of fat and the type of protein they're eating ends up in a place of inflammation where they've lost a bunch of weight. They know it works, so they keep doing it more, but they never lose the other 50 pounds. Then maybe they do what I did. Oh, I'll just be a vegan or I'll be a raw vegan. And then it works really well for six weeks. And then the oxalic acid starts to build up. And then the nutrient deficiencies start to build up. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, but my hormones aren't working right. And you say, but I know I felt so good on it. I'll do it even more. And you keep doubling down on something that you know works, except it stopped working. So for me, it was navigating those. And then sitting down, thank God, when I was in my mid-20s, I went to an anti-aging nonprofit research group. Everyone in the room is 70 plus, and there's you know <laughs> fat 26, 27-year-old me. And these people were getting younger, and they had so much knowledge and wisdom. This is like hanging out with the elders. And one of the board members was 88 years old and he had more energy than I did. I'm like, how is this possible? Uh, his name was Mike. And they, every month near Stanford University, we'd have an expert come in and talk. And all of a sudden I realized everything that I was doing that I thought would work was not based on any real science. And I was getting to know the experts and I learned how to interview them. And I started reading all the papers and I sat down when my doctor told me vitamin C would kill me. Literally, he said, you have to stop your three grams of vitamin C a day. It could kill you. And I, I just said, well, what about Linus Pauling? This is a guy who won two Nobel Prizes, took 90 grams of vitamin C a day. And he didn't know who he was. I'm like, my doctor doesn't know what he's doing. I got pissed off, you know, young, angry engineer, computer hacker guy. And for four years, I spent as much money as I wanted to because I was at a company, the company that held Google's first servers. I made $6 million when I was 26. Lost it when I was 28, by the way. Talk about stress. <laughs> <laughs> but during that time, like I will spend everything I have in order to feel good again. And I spent $300,000 getting my health back. And I've spent since then another probably seven, $800,000 on 
just realizing I can't believe my brain can do this. And I opened a neuroscience company that kind of combines that personal development thing with hard, you know, electrodes on the head showing you what's going on in there. And I became an expert in cognitive enhancement and smart drugs and all because I just wanted to, I wanted to feel like, actually, you know what I, <laughs> truthfully, there's a feeling if you're in a car and you press the accelerator all the way to the floor and the car keeps slowing down and you're going, I can't push any harder, right? Like I'm pushing as hard as I can. There's nothing else to do. And you feel this kind of sense of panic, like someone's going to hit me from behind, but like, I don't know what to do. I was there. And so that sense of desperation, I said, I don't ever want to feel like I don't have enough energy to handle what life brings my way. So I built this out and I wrote my blog, Rachel, I was a VP at a big Silicon Valley company, publicly traded. I had stock options and my blog was called the Bulletproof Executive when I started. And I, I literally said, five people are going to read this. And if they do that and they can avoid what I went through, I will have done such an act of service that it's totally worth it. And I didn't build a list. I didn't do anything you're supposed to do. I just shared it and I structured it. And I put all that I learned as a, as a teacher at the University of California and in my career in tech just to make it accessible. Because if someone had just told me that when I was 16, the amount of free energy that I would have had to do anything would have been so right. much higher. That's where I came from was just suffering and trying everything and meeting the experts and interviewing them. And now I've, I'm sometime this coming year, I think I'll cross a thousand episodes of Bulletproof Radio. I've got two full years of audio and you know six books just studying this because no one puts the info together in a way that you can do unless you've studied the way I have. And frankly, I would have rather just read a couple books and gone about doing something else. When you lose weight, the way most of us have learned to do it, which is by eating less and exercising more, <laughs> what ends up happening is your body still has the hunger levels of when you were fat. And mm. you will eventually return to that and then some. So I didn't really lose 100 pounds. I lost probably two or 300 pounds because you lose 25, gain 35, lose 35, gain 45, lose 45, gain 55. Wow, and yep. you yo-yo. Everyone who's lost meaningful amounts of weight has experienced this. But when you toss all that stuff out and say, I'm going to eat to have a lot of energy and you get enough of the right kinds of fats in there, all of a sudden, all the willpower that we use, it, it doesn't, it's not supposed to be about willpower. If the hunger is right. turned off because you tweaked those two hormones by eating the right stuff at the right time, what you're doing with your practice, Rachel, and I love it that you're using Bulletproof Coffee. Not because I started the company. It won't change my life <laughs> if you do or don't drink Bulletproof at this point. Right. Okay. It's that for women in particular, skipping breakfast every day without any energy tends to be really stressful if you do it all the time. So I right. advise women in Fast This Way, there's a whole chapter on fasting for women, is that maybe you want to just have a, a morning where you're doing intermittent fasting every other morning. And that might be mm -hmm. just enough for you. But that time when your body says, I have no sugar, I have no protein, you mean I can use all those systems to repair myself and I can use them for thinking and I'm not taking in any of this oxalic acid or corn syrup or artificial whatevers that are messing with you. It's a time of regeneration and energy, not a time of lack, not a time of hunger and cravings. And I tell you, the first time someone told me to skip a meal, I was like, are you kidding me? 
I, I remember very distinctly in Silicon Valley, I would sometimes end a, a meeting at 1145. I'm like, guys, I can't focus anymore. I just need to go eat. So we're just going to end the meeting and we'll go to the cafeteria because if I don't eat now, I'm going to eat one of you. And I would walk right. out of the room because I felt like I was going to die. It wasn't real, but I was having energy crash because I didn't know how to eat. Well, your brain uses somewhere around 20% of your energy and sometimes more, sometimes less. But it's interesting, the neurons in your brain, the parts that do the thinking, they are desperate for more energy. They have more of these little power plants, the mitochondria in them, than almost any other cells in the body, except in women, in your ovaries, you have 100,000 mitochondria per cell. And and otherwise, your neurons in the brain have 15,000 mitochondria per cell on average. And the rest of you has like 1,000. So this is like this is where the, the good stuff happens and the body's equipped you to do that. And they're desperate for energy and they're telling you, could you get me some sugar? Unless you've done a little bit of fasting and you've trained them to burn fat. And when they can burn fat, you go into this mild state of ketosis. Funny enough, when you drink that Bulletproof coffee that has the MCT oil in it, MCT oil mm -hmm. turns into ketones even if you haven't been fasting or you're not doing keto and all that kind of stuff. And then the neurons are like, wait a minute, if I burn a ketone, I get more electrons than if I burn sugar. And they will actually burn fat even if there's sugar present. And you feel this extra power boost that comes from that. But if at the same time, instead of doing that in the morning, you said, oh, I'm going to have even a bowl of healthy oatmeal, which is all carbs anyway, then like, okay, we can burn the carbs. We just burn them with less energy. And if you fast and you don't have anything, all the energy that goes into digesting food, which is a huge amount of creating enzymes in the pancreas and the liver, all of that energy doesn't have anywhere else to go. So the body says, hmm, maybe I should clean up some dead cells while I'm at it. Maybe I should grow new cells while I'm at it. I'll fold some proteins over here. And it's a time of regeneration. And because when it's doing that, it raises ketones, it increases that fullness hormone, CCK, and it drops the hunger hormone called ghrelin. So all of a sudden, if you do this right, at 10 a.m. when you would normally reach for the bagel or the muffin, like that's the snack time, if someone puts even a donut in front of you, you just look at it and you're like, I'm really not hungry. Okay. Right. No willpower required. So when I was heavy, mm -hmm. I remember they would bring like a plate of cookies in or, or one of these things in meetings in in like in big companies and you're sitting there in a meeting just looking at it and it's like eat me and you go no and he goes eat me no and pretty soon it's like a voice shouting in your head and eventually just like with a two-year-old you're like okay i'll just eat half and then after the meeting i'm like i told myself i wasn't gonna eat a cookie today and i ate half a cookie what's wrong with me well nothing's wrong with me it's because i ran out of electrons for willpower and my body is like right. ha, eat that eat that but if you turn off the signal Rachel, then the freedom comes because it's not even a choice. Like, I just right. don't want it. Instead of telling yourself you don't want to want it. They're so different and it's so liberating. To me, being healthy is really grounded in nutrition. Honestly, what I eat and what my kids eat is super important to how we live our lives. It's why I love a company like Thrive Market, because Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. 
they restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So when I go online and I use their on-site filters, I can figure out exactly my lifestyle needs and trust that what I'm getting from Thrive Market is what I want to take into my body. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. You can join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash rach for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash rach thrivemarket.com slash rach this episode is brought to you by progressive where drivers who save by switching save nearly 750 dollars on average plus auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You kind of try to do your best to be the your favorite person yeah. that you enjoy, yeah. And then through that, you realize, oh, you know what? I actually wouldn't do it that way, and I would. I prefer to do it this way, or or X Y Z. And then that's what makes you unique in turn. So for me, I think it was more so just listening to Tribe Called Quest and Wu Tang Clan, and you know, so many different amazing artists, and in trying to do what they did and find and figure out why they did it and how they did it as well as they did, whether it's enunciation and pronunciation and you know, just a, a certain level of having vocabulary. I mean, Nas, when he was, even before Illmatic, right? Illmatic came out in 93, I believe. Might have been 92, but I'm pretty sure it was 1993. And so Illmatic comes out and he's using words like cerebral cortex and like all this shit. And he's like from the hood. He's from Queensbridge, like selling drugs and all this stuff. People just didn't talk that way. And so that is another thing that inspired me to like check out books from the library on human anatomy and medical terms and all this other shit. So rather than just like, you know, listen to whoever talking about, I got bitches and hoes and fuck yeah, and look at this money and all, whatever. I was like, nah, I also don't have any of that. So like, what can I talk about? Right. Um, so I think that uh, a mixture between my home life, studying what the greats before me had done and just kind of wanting to do something different, like integrate the fact that I'm a nerd and I like sci-fi and anime and all these different things, which I was persecuted for many years for in hip hop. But I think I'm also a big reason uh, of why hip hop has changed. Um, and there are people like me who don't necessarily have to fit a certain uh, stereotype or talk about a certain thing. Uh, well, so yeah, I was at like the height uh, or the beginning of the change in music and branding and every, all, all these things online. So this was before uh, social media uh, and you know places like Twitter and Instagram, they didn't even know what they had. At this point, I had been making music. I learned how to record. I, I basically had this old like microphone I would use and I was rapping over beats and you know, over time things got better and the quality got better and I'm finding friends who make beats or shoot videos and we're just kind of creating this thing. And then I'm utilizing Twitter and anybody listening now, it's, you kind of go, duh, like I would, I would put my video on Twitter and tweet it out. 
Yeah. And it seems like, oh my God, but this was like discovering the wheel. Right. So at this, at this age of the internet, there was no making it there. It was, you got to be on the radio. You got to be on MTV. You got to be on all these things like that. That's what matters. And so, uh, that just isn't what it is. We want what we want, how we want it and when we want it so much. So to the point where it's like Apple TV, right? Which I love. It's like, they may drop two original uh, episodes, but then you have to still wait weekly to watch it. And in many ways, that even in and of itself is very uh, like old school. Because yeah. I mean, with anything now, it's at the tip of your fingers. You can just have it, watch it, listen right. to it, do it all at once. This the, the, this was different. It wasn't like that. If you wanted a song, you still had to listen to a radio. If you wanted to watch a music video, you still had to watch MTV. So for me and J. Cole and Kendrick Lamar and Mac Miller to take a clip and Wiz Khalifa and Big Sean and so many others, Big Grid, Action Bronson, I could go on, to take, uh, embed a video and go, hey, you guys can watch this anytime you want right now. Here you go. It was extremely revolutionary. And so I would, I was doing that and I was really connecting with my fans and doing these live streams. It's just so funny. I say all these things now, like live streams. And it's just so like, duh. Right. But back then it just did. It, it's, it wasn't a thing. It's crazy. But back then when I was essentially doing what I'm doing now in film, I felt like I wasn't doing shit. I was just a kid in a basement and I was constantly focusing on the future and the next goal and the next thing and the next that. And once I really started, and I, I still make music every day. I love music. It's amazing. But this is the next chapter in my life. And I remember one day I was on set, Apple Original. I have this crazy episode and I'm in it and I don't play some rapper. Like I'm an actor. It's great. And I'm on set like, man, I just wish that. And I started catching myself the same way that I was back in the basement, thinking about the future. If I had more fans or if I could go on tour, or if I could just get a record deal or if I could this, da, 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 whatever. And I look back on those times and I don't truly appreciate them because I wasn't as present or in the moment as I possibly could have been because I was so focused on the what ifs or what I want or the desire of or if I could one day get there. And even though I sacrificed my entire 20s and had that exact same mentality every year for the last 15 years with film. I will not do that. And I have not done that. And I am telling myself, dude, you're in the basement right now. Yeah. You got to enjoy this because you're never going to be here again. Yeah. That's so good. I believe in mastering your craft and I'm a master musician, right? I don't, I say, I don't say that with ego. I say that with confidence and just fact, like I spent my entire life and sacrificed many years. I didn't go to parties. I didn't drink. I didn't this. I didn't that. In a studio, you know, listening to beats, whatever the case may be. Um, so when I see people and they're like, yeah, I'm an actor, singer, dancer, musician, this, that, that like all these things in their bio on Twitter. And they're like 19. I'm like, <laughs> all what right. are you? Uh, yeah, it's just kind of, you know. I believe in the 10,000 hour theory. I think as much time as you put into something, you're guaranteed to see that and get that back and get those results. As long as you truly are insane and a crazy person and you make it your whole life. So, you know, for well over a decade, I've been making music and, and now I can just, I, it's like breathing. So, right. and once again, I don't say that to sound any type of way. It's just, I do what I do and I do it very well. Yeah. And, you know, being at a round table with amazing actors, and having my heart beating out of my chest as I'm there for like this table read. Right. That's something that I don't feel when I'm on stage at Madison Square Garden and yeah. it's sold out. I don't yeah. feel that anymore. Yeah. I'm excited to be there. Right. I'm so stoked, but I'm like, yo, let's go. Like, this yeah. is what I do. And so I need something that makes my heart race, you know? And 
that's my family and this these these new endeavors. Yeah, that's really cool. Has that been hard for you to hold on to it? It's funny because we somehow veered away from a similar question that you just tied into, which was when you do other things, how do fans take it? Right. Right. And so the same could be said with this. Um, first of all, fans don't really take it well, but I could give a shit because a true fan of somebody, it's a fanatic. It's someone right. who absolutely loves you. And it's just going to adore you. It is what it is. And, it's, you know, there's some people who are like, well, no, if I don't like something, but it's just like people didn't really use to talk like that. Like once you got once you got social media and you're following the person you love and you're liking their comments and you're saying great job. And then you start to realize that you can turn this device on yourself and then it becomes about you. And then you realize I hold the power. We hold the power and these hashtags and we go, this album isn't what I thought it would be. And then you have these other people, (laughs) all this shit and whatever. And then it becomes about the consumer and less about the person who's creating the art, which I have had my fair share of doubt with. I have made not necessarily, I I, I wouldn't say that I haven't made the best music because I really do put my whole heart into everything. But I have made music based on what fans are saying. Mm. And that is not a good thing to do, especially when you make music like me, because I pick up a guitar, I can sing, I rap, I make, you know, all different kinds of music. And I've realized that if I want to make like trap, fun, hype, party music, there's a bunch of people who aren't going to like it because, excuse me, they like the logic that raps like he's in the basement when I do the super raw, gritty hip hop Nas type shit. And then there's other, and then both of those people are going to hate when I do the more, uh, you know, kind of alternative or folky music there because that's not even their genre of music. And then it's, so it's like, I have to realize I am different and I am doing this for myself. Right. And that is the biggest thing because like people turn on you like that. And I've, I've, but the craziest shit is, it's like, it's such a finite amount of people. Like I, they're I, just the loudest. Yeah, the you know loud I mean? minority. Yeah, 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 yeah. hundred percent. So I have, I'm, I'm 31. You know, they really say when you're in your 30s, you 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 kind of have a clear grip on who you are and you you spend your 20s like trying to find yourself. And I, f- I know who I am and I know what matters and I know what doesn't. And now I just could give a fuck. Yeah. And I'm just going to make shit. And if you like it, cool. And if not, hey, whatever, it doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, I really do view myself as a child. I see children and all creative and beautiful people it's just like, imagine all the terrible, horrible things that people can say to you on the internet. Like, you suck. You're fucking terrible. You'll never be shit. I hope your baby dies. Your wife's ugly, blah, blah, blah. And then imagine saying that to a picture of me when I'm five years old. Right. It's like, fuck you. Like, I'm yeah. a creative person. I'm going to do what I want. And if you like it, cool. And if not, cool. And the biggest thing here, too, is you have a majority of people, or not a majority, you have a, a section of people who are saying these things, but they are doing nothing. Right. That's a real thing. They right. ain't doing shit or they want to be doing what you're right. doing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you feel like you are this creative because you create every day? No. No. Because I used to create every day. I think that's what makes me a great rapper because I used to rap every day and do yeah. multiple songs a day for years. And well, I mean, I have thousands and thousands and thousands of songs that just aren't even out. You know? Yeah. They're not good enough. You know, you don't see every, you didn't see Michael Jordan in the gym missing all those shots that yeah. it took to make the shots. <laughs> you know? So, no. I think I'm a psychopath and my brain is constantly trying to create or think of things. But I think at this stage in my life, personally, the lack of creation and finding balance and spending that time with my son or my wife or my this or my that is actually better for me. Mm -hmm. Because then when I do sit down, it's like, all right, it's go time. And I can be so excited to like really focus on something because I've let, I've let art and creation rule me for so long to get here. 
But now it's like, dude, like you got to take a break. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. My favorite thing about music isn't releasing it. It's making it and watching my friends' reactions to it. Oh, You know, like when I'm in this studio right here and I'm in the corner and I'm like watching people, if they catch a certain punchline or, you know, whatever the case may be, like that's what really gets me excited. I kind of hate the the part of like releasing it into the world to get shit on. Yeah. (laughs) Even though that doesn't really get shit. You know what I mean? But it's just like as a creative, that's all you think. You think about you know, right. the negative sometimes. Right. But the cool thing is, is like, I've been so off the internet that now when I release music, I, I, I'm not even a part of that. Right. Which is kind of sad, but at the same time freeing. Cause it's just yeah. like, I can do whatever I want. And I know that nothing is going to alter how I make music or what I do next. So with this process, it makes me feel just as happy and kind of a little happier. Nah, it's weird. Cause Making music is the most blissful experience. Like, I love it. But there's something that about the fact that this is newer and yeah. I'm less experienced, so I'm learning constantly and it's more exciting. I, I'm just in this phase of my life. How do you process, like, when you're in a, in a season or in an experience of, like, a lot of information's coming at you, what are the things that you do to process the information you're receiving? Uh, I journal. Me too, yeah. I talk to my girlfriends. I'm big on talking. Yes. Um, I would imagine that probably falls under your umbrella too. Mm-hmm. Um, Are you a verbal processor? Does it help you to sort of talk through? Yeah. I'm not only a verbal processor, but it is part of, it can help more and more come through. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I think those are the two biggest things. Do you, do do you journal else? every day, like consistently, or are you sort of like when you're feeling what you're feeling, then you're like, I got to get this down. Yeah. I'm not a religious sort of person about, I use religion and I'm only meaning it for being a, 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 a timeline of, of, um, repetition. Um, I'm not religious about journaling. Um, yeah, it's just kind of as needed. It's extremely yeah. therapeutic for me. So I, but I, I can kind of process with my eyes closed, process when I write, process when I talk, process when I, you know, look at the sun rising. So yeah. What about you? I So, so I do, I have a gratitude practice that I do every day. Um, so I write down things that I'm grateful for every morning. And then most of the time, if I'm journaling, it's because I'm feeling something that I need to work through, or I do I would say 98% of the time, and this was like a previous life, but if I was on an airplane, I always journal on airplanes Hmm. because I feel like there's some great thing that happens with, you know, there's like the ambient noise. And if you don't buy the internet, then nobody can access you. And you're just sort of alone with your thoughts. And usually I feel like I'm going or coming from something big. And so you know, either I'm going to a big work event or maybe I'm on my way to vacation. And so I'm setting my intentions for what I want to be able to, you know, have out of that experience. So, you know, what's really interesting is that when I go back, I do a lot of stuff every year at the end of the year and the start of the year, I do it by myself and I do it with my friends. We're really big on getting together, setting intentions, goal settings. We do it all the time. I think everybody is going to go through something painful. Mm -hmm. Everybody, every human being. The difference is that there are people who go through something painful and it changes them for the better. And then there are people who go through something painful and they look for the goodness. They look for not like, oh, this was meant to happen, but is there something, is there wisdom in this for me? 
is there a lesson? What am I meant to learn? Who was, you know, what, what came out of this experience um, that we'll all go through hard things. It's just that, you know, you could talk to another person who'd be like, yep, the universe is out to get me. You know, the, this political party, that boss, this thing, like they choose to see the world or, or maybe so many hard things have happened to them that they don't even know how to get out from under the weight of all of the hard things that they've been through. And so they can only see the world through the lens of awful. And I'm just so inspired and have been so inspired by people who have lived through really hard things and managed to find beauty and managed to rebuild and managed to become something. Um, And I think I had an example of that from my, like my whole life, my, um, my paternal grandparents who I was very close to and still feel them with me. They've gone to heaven a long time, but I, they're always with me. Um, were farmhands, you know, were picked cotton, picked potatoes. You know, my grandma had six kids and they had no money and they had no real education and they just kept showing up for life and kept working hard and kept looking for the good. And like from the very earliest uh, memories I have of my grandma, I have that example of you know, someone who just kept showing up with optimism Mm. and with hope and with belief in her family and in humans and, um, you know, and, and enjoyed good food and growing her roses and my grandpa. And so I just, I always had this example of someone who, I mean, her life had was so hard. And she just kept looking for goodness. I I definitely identify. There was a, I would say like when I was talking about earlier, when I was not graceful with myself or not accepting, I would have judged the same things. I pushed myself so hard. I didn't rest. You know, it's like, oh, you're sick. Well, who cares? You got work to do. Like I, all of those things, I absolutely would have judged other people for. In fact, my best friend. Did you ever take the Enneagram test? Did we talk about this? We talked about it, but I haven't, I, I think oh, come on. the numbers, it's like one through nine or something. One through nine. Yeah. Yeah. So I, swear my, I think I took it and I thought I was an eight. You said you're definitely oh, a three. I think you said, I thought you were a three, but you could be an eight. You absolutely eight. could be. An eight. There was one. I could see that. I could yeah, probably so it's you, through like it's my the number before or after. So the for an eight, the number nine is an option of the number seven. So a seven is an enthusiast, like you get really excited about things, you want to figure them out. And then a nine is a peacekeeper. You want to keep peace between people. Mm. So it would have been one of those. So maybe you're not an eight, maybe you're three. Maybe. But my best friend is a seven, which is the enthusiast. And when we first met, probably that first year, I loved her, but I also totally was just like, oh, this woman, like, you know, she's so much talent. Why doesn't she write a book? Like she doesn't, why doesn't she do like, um, and I, we would go on runs and I'd be like, oh my gosh, okay, what if you did this? And then you could do this and then you could do that. And it, for the longest time, I was like, why isn't she more like me? Right. I wasn't putting those words to it, but that was essentially what was happening. And now I, I mean, it is by the grace of God that this is my best friend because 
I, this sounds so cheesy, but I feel like in so many ways she taught me how to live. She taught me how to have margaritas and drink wine and go on vacation and just sit. And she taught me things that I needed so desperately in my life. And I have such a more beautiful, richer, funner existence because of this person who is not like me at all. And so I, there was a time where I would have judged that. And now I'm like, thank you, God. I know exactly why you put this person into my path. I know exactly why they're here. And I rub off on her, right? She did write the book. <laughs> um, and she rubs off on me. And that is the beauty of that kind of relationship is like, you're both bringing something to this table. And mm. yeah, but I definitely can understand. I would have judged that long ago for sure. Well, I mean, I want to build a world that's like post COVID because I really miss, I, I, mean, I don't I really know why miss you say you want something that's travel. Right. Right. I really miss travel. Um, I think the new, this is, um, Dave is so wonderful, but Dave is pretty, um, and I think he'd say this, um, he's not necessarily like an adventure kind of person. Like he doesn't, he's pretty good with like the same, doing the same thing. And I really, I love, I'm a homebody. I love being at home. I love my routine, but I love an adventure. I love doing something I've never done before. I love going to a place, eating new food, meeting a new person. Let's make friends. Let's, it is, it is such a big part of who I am. And I think um, you, we, there are, there are pieces, I don't know if you've discovered this, but you know, this is the, he's the only person I've ever been with. So this is the first time I've ever broken up with someone. So I don't even, all of this is very new to me. Right. Let's and, go on date together. Let's go on right. double dates. I feel like I am not, I'm like, I can't even fathom that yet. Someday maybe, <laughs> but right now I'm like, oh my God. But um, I have never realized how many parts of myself I had suppressed just because he didn't, he didn't like doing that thing. And I am positive that that goes both ways. Like I am positive. There are things that he loves that he didn't do because I didn't really like to do them. I think it's a natural thing when you meet someone, when you're that young, because you just sort of like, Oh, we'll just become this like blob together yeah. instead of like our individual selves. Right. And so there's just a bunch of stuff that I, I, I'm excited to explore again when we're able to do that. Um, I, one of my favorite things ever, and I sort of get to do this through the podcast, but I just, I want to be able to do this in life is like, I want to have this conversation with no cameras and wine, right? I just want to be able to like meet people and like, no, I know, but like, over, like, okay. I mean, this is I'll all go. I do. I don't have shallow friends. Like, unless we're yeah. talking about the fabric of the universe and inner child, right. <laughs> what are we even doing here? Yeah. What are we even doing here? Yeah. So I think that the, the closer world for me looks like I want to be able to have some adventures, travel. Um, I want to be able to create some stuff that, you know, I was just having this conversation with Rob about like when you're known for something that that's what everybody expects you to keep being or keep doing or keep showing up as. And I'm sure you don't know anything about that. Right. <laughs> and what is it, you know, what does it look like to be able to 
create things um, that you create for yourself. You know, in the new book is a very different tone than I've ever written in before. And usually it's lots of humor and irreverent and self-deprecating. And now I've written this book that's has some humor, but is hard and is, you know, it's sad subject. It's hard things to talk about. And even in that, I can sort of see the audience going like, well, where's, you know, girl, wash your face too. Um, and so I think for me, it's about being able to create some stuff that maybe people aren't used to seeing from me. So I'm almost done with a script. I wrote a movie. What? Yeah. Well, it could be absolute garbage, but it more is just that I wanted to try a medium I hadn't worked in before. I mean, which is, it's literally never crossed my mind to write a script. So you're throwing it away like, oh, it might be crap. Like I've never even thought to do that. Well, maybe you should. Maybe. I just, I, I love, um, I love a challenge. I, I feel like once, uh, once I've done something, I don't want to do that same thing again. Like I'd rather go, and maybe this is what people see is kind of like 10 more failures before I have another big success, because at least I was trying different things as opposed to just like doing the same stuff over and over. So the, the future that I imagine for myself right now, I can't even fathom a relationship. I'm not, that's not even, I don't, I'm not even interested. I'm interested in getting to know myself. Mm. I'm interested in um, sort of becoming more me. Um, you know, it's funny when um, rumors started to sort of circulate, and maybe this is normal, but I never experienced this, obviously, of like who I was, who I was with secretly or who I was going to be with. And I just find that so fascinating that that's what people think. Like, I'm like, I just got out of an 18 year relationship five months ago. You think that five months is enough time for me to like deal with the pain, deal with my emotion, come to terms with what has happened, do the therapy. You think that five months is enough for 18 years. And you think that the solution to my pain should be to immediately go get into a relationship with someone else who also has baggage. That's no, that's what people way. do. That's what people yes. do. So they don't have to feel. So they don't yes. have to see the shit. Yes. So they don't yes. have to see their shit. Right. They right. do. And they don't think, and more than anything, it's not even, I don't think it's conscious. Like, I'm not going to look at that. I think that's 100%. out there. Sure. Um, but I think a lot of it is they don't think anything is wrong. Right. Right. Like, oh, just go find, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've had so many people like, executives and meetings, people on the street, like who will say, Oh, don't worry. He's out there. Like you're going to find. And I'm like, you think that's my concern? Like you think that's my focus? Like, Oh, I got to go find the new. No, no. Oh my gosh. No. Like, ah, the right one's out there. Oh, you'll find. And you know, then there's the whole like mess in your mind of like, Oh, think about anybody else. And then you can like, or you just like, ah, it feels icky. You're like, I'm not there yet. Right. I'm not there. I'm not there. And I feel like I have, even in this hardship, I have, I'm so freaking blessed. I have these four awesome kids 
that I have this incredible team of people that I work with. Like, this is what I'm doing right now. I started taking horseback riding lessons. Amazing. I started golfing. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm a golfer. Who knows? I definitely think you should come to come to see me in Arizona. I'm okay. a member at a really, really nice golf course called Scottsdale National. Bob Parsons, Perfect. who uh, started GoDaddy, has it. I'm it's not very good. Oh, I'm so terrible. I'm allowed- okay, great. Okay. As long as we're I don't at the even same keep level. Okay, great. Perfect. Perfect. I'm down. I Here's my question. I don't know if the, I'm not, I don't know if I should ask you this, but I want to. Is there a world, like, do people like you have just access to race cars? And is there a world that if we were real life friends, that you could take me in a car, we could drive very fast? Because when am I ever going to get to experience that? I decided, you know, I'm going to create stuff and I'm just going to share it with anybody and everybody. And I've kind of been true to that since that moment. So I wrote Little Rock and I made a demo of it and it was a piano vocal. It was like literally five minutes long. And I just started sending it and giving it to anybody and everybody. And I I literally, I, I still had a few contacts in Nashville and I would send the song to them. I said, look, I'll give you the publishing on this. You can have the song if you'll just pitch it, if you'll just give me some encouragement and everybody, nobody responded. Uh, but I reconnected with Paul Worley, who's like my guardian angel. And I had known him 10 years before as a guitar player in Nashville. And by this time he was an executive at Sony publishing. Mm-hmm. I gave Paul a cassette of little rock after four glasses of red wine at a <laughs> cocktail party at a songwriting seminar in Austin. Nice. And uh, I gave him a cassette and miraculously he listened and he said, I think I can get one of these songs cut. And he ran with it. And uh, well, he signed me to Sony publishing in 1993 and uh, he got little rock recorded and I've been with Sony since 1993. And how old were you at that point? At that point, I was 41. I love that because I feel like so many people think that the dream has a deadline. Yeah. You're and right. To you don't hear a lot of stories of someone in their 40s yeah. getting the first big break. Right. So is that is that common in this town, or do you feel like you have a unique? Well, I it it I think it is unique, and I um, most people most people believe that you have to be here day in day out, grinding out 250 songs a year. And just, you know, that that's the way it works. And then it's, you know, as Nashville, L.A., New York, I guess they all say they're 10-year towns at least. Yeah, I've heard that. So you come here and just you can set the clock. You're not going to have success for 10 years. Yeah. And that, that, that probably is true. I just think, honestly, that's a miserable way to live your life. I don't think you should do that. Yeah. I don't. I don't think you should go to one of those centers until you have – a modicum of success right. somehow. Right. I love Nashville. I love everything about it. And I'm a publisher yeah. as well as a songwriter. So like everything in life, it's nuanced. Mm. You know, there, it, it's not just one easy answer. The truth is you have to write so many bad songs <laughs> yeah. to get to the good songs. That's true. Yeah. So in a sense, it's, it is a numbers game. And in another sense, you know, it's not, it's, it, 
there is no one size fits all. Mm-hmm. You, you just have to, uh, I mean, you have to stay in the process and the process does require you showing up. And I mean, I still write, you know, probably a hundred songs a year. Wow. And it, it's, it's not that I have to, it's just, I love the process. Yeah. I try to detach myself from the outcome. Like everybody says that you should do. And sometimes, most of the times I'm not successful with that. Occasionally I am, but you know, it's so, yeah, I mean, it, but I see so many young writers that are just grinding it out. And in one sense, I, you know, they're waiting for that moment of success. And sometimes it comes, sometimes it doesn't. But I still think they're better off staying in Grand Cane, Louisiana, working in a, you know, a, a metal shop yeah. and, and writing songs and living their life and, you know, growing their family there, have a little success. And then Nashville, like LA or New York, it's, they, they need to introduce you. Like this is yeah. Rachel Hollis. Yeah. She's got this huge podcast and she sold seven million books. And then yeah. it's like, okay, All I right, want to we'll talk, talk to, to Rachel. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's yeah. just life. A hundred percent. When you're writing a hundred songs a year, how many of those do you actually show anybody? Well, you know, I mean, I'll probably show them all, most of them. Uh, just, you know, they. I think Guy Clark said a song is not finished until somebody listens to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it. That's what writers do. You yeah. know, we we want we want we're looking for that initial point of inspiration, and then I want to inspire you. I want yeah. Yeah, I want to play you something. Say, did you get it? Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of what we do. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll still, you know, demo most of those songs, turn it into Sony, and you know, and they'll they'll listen and give me some feedback. Yeah. So you have let's going back to this idea. You have Little Rock. Yeah. Did you have your next song ready to go before that came out and became a hit, or how did the how did the career go from yeah, that so, first success? Um, that was 1993. Little Rock got recorded, and I was signed to Sony, and they allowed me to kind of start coming to Nashville one week a month. I was still in Dallas, mm-hmm. so I stayed in Dallas as a real estate broker even after Little Rock had gone number one. Just because I still think you should have a a a healthy mistrust for the machine. I love I I love this because a lot of people don't talk about it. Yeah. And it is um I am the queen of chase the dream, go big, reach for something more, but not to the detriment of yourself or right. your family. Yeah. And I think that people or dreamers can trick themselves into believing that if they just Right. You know, it's like leap and the net will appear. Yeah. Some kind of net will appear, but right. it's not necessarily. So I love that you're talking about that because I feel like most people don't, it's like, don't play it too safe, but also don't bet the farm and lose everything. Yeah. I, I, I you know, I mean, if you're 24 or 25 and you've kind of got, you know, a foundation behind you, and you're not married, and you don't have any entanglements. Uh, my son, you know, is uh, pursuing acting and screenwriting in L.A. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so, but you know, he was twenty five. He's twenty five. Right. He lives at Venice Beach with right. four of the guys, <laughs> right. and he loves Live your it. life, bro. So, yeah. You know, that's a different case. Absolutely. But, but if you're married and have you know two kids, and you got a good job in UPS. 
you know, in nowhere in Nebraska and you love songs, yeah. do not quit your job right. and leave your family network and come to Nashville. Right. You can, it, I don't know, I, I guess in life, we want everything to be binary. We want mm -hmm. it to be either or, and it's just not, it's both and. Yeah. I had finally learned to write songs by myself. And then all of a sudden, I'd kind of figured something out. And then I left that guy. Interesting. And I started coming to Nashville one week a month writing hundreds of very mediocre songs <laughs> just because it's like a kid in a candy shop. Yeah. And they're interesting people and it's sights and sounds and it's fun and they're interesting people. Uh, but I lost that guy that wrote Little Rock. Mm. And then it's taken me years to go back and find That's him again. That's interesting. Yeah. Did you have hits in the time we were I, I had a few. Yeah, I mean, I had a few other songs recorded. I've never really had very many songs recorded, honestly. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, but the songs Just that the I've songs written. the songs that are recorded well, the, are, they are massive. I mean, I have written 2,700 songs wow. in 27 years. So I've written a lot of songs. Probably I've gotten, you know, a couple of hundred recorded. Mm -hmm. So that's. 2,500 songs that will never see the light of day. But, <laughs> but yeah, so I started getting you know, a little more traction. And then, uh, again, Sony was my backstop. They said in 1997, look, you're doing this one week a month. We really think you can do this. Let us help you get to Nashville. Bring your family here. And so I did. I moved my family back. And so at that time, I was 44. And I was married with three children, and but Sony made it possible, you know, with a, a draw to let me uh, be here and uh, really get after it. And then things did start kicking into gear. Mm -hmm. But at that, that time, I was 44. I'd had a couple of hits. People knew who I was, and I had confidence uh, that I could do it. And, I mean, as you know, confidence is 95% of it. Absolutely. What is your creative process like? Well, uh, I mean, you have to work in horrible conditions. It's a horrible place. <laughs> um, you know, it is, I am very regimented, mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, very disciplined, almost not OCD, but a little bit in that I, I, I know, fortunately I like the, the what I do. And so, it's easy to do it, but I mean, I, you know, I kind of get up at the same time. I have to exercise every day. I have to, you know, read the Bible and pray and try to get my mind centered. And then I love to read newspapers. I love newspapers. I've gotten so many great ideas, like literally the tactile experience of a newspaper. Mm -hmm. Most people your age, you don't even know what a newspaper no, is. No, I do. But, I get but, the I get the Wall Street Journal okay. delivered on Saturday no, so okay. I can sit and read the whole thing. Well, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, I mean, they're just, I think that's the some of the greatest writing in yeah. the world is yeah. in newspapers, yeah. journalists. Uh, and I'm always reading fiction and some, and I'm always journaling like you are. And mm -hmm. somehow through the process, I have so many ideas that just kind of reveal themselves, just staying in the flow that uh, then when I finally get a chance to sit down and write by myself or collaborate with somebody, I've I've always got lots of ideas. But mm -hmm. you, the hard thing is you just don't know which one's good right. or bad. What comes first for you, the song or the words? Usually the idea. Yeah. So if we were writing a song, 
which okay, we okay, Tom. Okay, let's go. well, I, I, I <laughs> as a piano, I didn't know that this was your uh, your your next chapter. You'll probably come in to take over the town. Just no. remember me. Will oh you? my word, no. Um, guys that I've written with for years will come in and start reading a list of titles. Yes, yeah. And that is off-putting to me. I can't. I don't do that now. Of course, everything honestly I say is contradictory because Alan came in and said, "What about the house of building?" Right. So, but the 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 title has to reveal almost the whole story, mm-hmm. uh, and the more specific it is, the more universal it becomes. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, probably the greatest unrequited love song of all time is "I Will Always Love You" by Dolly yeah. Parton. So you think. That's a very generic title. You're and right. then when you realize that she's writing it to try to break away from Porter Wagner, you're like, oh, man, That's I get it. That's a whole thing, yeah. Uh, are you still actively working and creating stuff every day now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah it, I, I do it because I love it. I just, I can't, I can't stop it. I mean, somebody said, look, I'll give you, I'll give you a hundred million dollars, but you could never write another song. Yeah. I would have to say, respectfully, I decline. Yeah. I just, that would, I just couldn't, that would be a deal with the devil for yeah. me. Yeah. Tell me what you think about this. I think most people listen to the radio, listen to songs on the radio or streaming or whatever. I think because they're, they're trying to escape something. Yeah. Yeah. They're trying to forget something. Yeah, or tap into a feeling. Okay. You know, like if you're having a hard day and you're trying to, I got to get home and I need to be a mama right now and right. change my bad attitude. Yeah. I'm trying to tap in. Yeah. Yeah. I write songs because I'm trying to remember something. Mm. But I don't think most, I don't think most people listen to music because they're trying to remember something. Yeah, you're right. I think they listen to it because they're trying to forget something. Yeah. I mean, the, honestly, they're both valid. Yeah. You want it to be meaningful, not just, I'd like to thank this. I'd like yeah. to thank that. Uh, that, they say, don't do that, yeah. you know, at the, at the award shows. Because it still is about the audience. You yes. want to, it, it's, everything we do is, we're really just narrating somebody else's story. So I was just thinking, how can I do this in 12 minutes that's going to be meaningful to the people that are there and all the people that have recorded my song? And so I, 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 I found, again, this is, I think, godly wisdom i found this uh, the device of a letter mm. so my induction speech was a letter to a discouraged young songwriter which really did happen and he was like i think i should quit i don't know why i'm doing this why should i keep going you know and i know he's looking at me thinking you got it all together it's been easy for you and i just wanted to pull the veil back on the ecstasy and the agony of life and how really all those things, you know, the, the tragedy and the and the beauty of your life, uh, it all goes into the art that you create. And I kind of overlaid that speech with the seven days of creation from mm-hmm. Genesis, which people are like, what? <laughs> uh, it, anyway, it made sense to me. And I got so much interest in the speech over years. Uh, people would constantly come up, Man, that was the greatest speech, and it was on YouTube, and you know, many people saw it. In 2018, I was very discouraged with 
you know, writing. I mean, I'm constantly discouraged, but I was really at a low point. I was like, I don't, I, why am I doing this? I don't even know why I'm doing it. And I thought back to the, my own speech that I gave about, you know, why we do what we do. And then I got to go see Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. I've heard that's amazing. It, you have to see it on yeah. Netflix. Okay. So I saw it in a little theater on Broadway and it was two and a half hours of Bruce and his life and songs. And he talked all about Freehold, New Jersey. And the magic of that took me to 3018 Oregon Drive. And he was really narrating his story, but it was my life. And I thought, I know how to do that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always looking for ways out of the, the despair and the discouragement of creating. I mean, yeah. it's very discouraging. It's so hard. It's so, it's just, it's a brutal thing. And so I'm looking for outlets. So I thought, okay, what if I took this 12 minute speech and blew it up into a, you know, a, a one man show, it's kind of it, so mine is a bad version of Bruce Springsteen. No, on Broadway. it's not. Did you perform it live ever? I did it hundreds of times. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's really started as a one man cool. show. So I bring people out here on the weekends. I did it for corporations. I did it for charities. It was just How a thing. Rad. Like it was a way for me to connect with people. So you had done it as a live performance. I did it a hundred times in a, uh, a young. Oscar-nominated film director that was in Nashville saw my one-man performance. And he said, I know how to make a movie out of that. Mm. And I was like, let's do it. Yeah. So in February of 2020, uh, we, my, my son helped me create the one-man performance. He wrote the script with me. And then my son-in-law is actually the, the producer of the film in this He's like my Irish son. He, he directed <laughs> it. So uh, uh, right before the pandemic shut everything down, miraculously, we did all the filming in February of early 2020, and then the shutdown happened. And uh, and then we, you know, we went into all the post production and the editing and all that, and uh, and then we found some really great people to help us. Jason Owen, who's a big manager in town is in the film and TV space and Sony music entertainment, Tom McKay and Chandra LaPlume. They came in They are They had experience, uh, you know, in the film and TV. And we, uh, we, we, we made a deal with them and then they, they're the ones that shopped it, you know, to the 150 different streaming right. services. But we ended up mercifully with the Paramount plus we love movies. You know, I think every songwriter, every creative person loves movies. So yeah, it was just, it was a blast. Uh, it was fun working with that team. And um, it is performance storytelling, which is, that's what one of our team, Chandra LaPlume, called it. And, you know, yeah, it is different, but it's, it's, it wasn't like we set out to do something different. It's just, it's the only way that I knew to do it because yeah. it, it, it's based on a one man performance. It's just a one man show. Yeah. It just happens to be the, but it's so much what we didn't want to do is just film my one man show on a stage somewhere. That would that would make the yeah. paint drying on the wall right. interesting. The cornerstone uh for the play and the and and for the film in that the the love Tom on Paramount Plus, it's not really about my father. It's just it just happened. My father obviously is a big part as all fathers for better, for worse, yes. 
you know, influence us. Um, but I was trying to reconcile. My father died in 1996, and I was trying to reconcile. Uh, I, I really, you know, thought I'd made peace with this with his passing because it was, I mean, he had cancer and it was, you know, he'd suffered all that other mm -hmm. thing. And, and, and it was a, he, he really came back to himself the last three years of his life. So we were sad to see him go, but it was a merciful ending. And, um, but I had this, I thought peace with my father's passing. And then I had this crazy burning ambition that was, they were parallel and I could, I never could quite figure it out. Uh, why I was so ambitious because it's not really money that does it or even accolades. It was, and here's the crazy thing. I realized, I don't know, in 2017, my ambition was tied to try to redeem my father's reputation because mm. I hated. Mm. <laughs> Just like your brother. Yeah. I hated the way it ended. Yeah. So, but, you know, the, the beauty of the creative process is that I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. It's, it's God has got his reputation. Right. That's not, that's a weight you can't carry. Yeah. The Rachel Hollis podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.